0: Yahweh, we just thank you for the amazing God that you are, the great God that you are, the powerful God that you are, the loving God that you are. And we just thank you for this night to come into your word and investigate it. And um, especially just doing some books that we hardly hear about in church and people don't go through very often. And I just thank you for these books that you've provided for us. And I pray that you reveal yourself to us, um, that you reveal... What is godly about these people, what is ungodly, what is to convict us, what is to inspire us, what is to challenge and grow us, and allow this to transform us and make us more like you, and to have a heart for you and other people as we walk away from this. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Esther, and this book is an interesting book and a largely misunderstood book in a lot of ways. People have just like turned this into a a story of a heroine who does this amazing thing to prevent the death of the Jews. And though that is true, there's way more going on than just a simple hero story. So the title of the book, Esther, comes from his primary character, which is clear. And Esther is actually her Persian name, not her Jewish name. And we'll see that later. We have no idea who really wrote the book of Esther. The book begins with the phrase, this happened during the time of Xerxes, suggesting that it was written long after Xerxes I. So when you say, like, one time in the time of this king, that implies that that king is no longer ruling. So it seems to suggest that this is way after that event. And that makes sense. Stories are usually written after it happens. Well, they always are. But the linguistics suggests a later date, the late date of 400s or early 300s B.C. A Greek manuscript of the book of Esther is dated between 114 and 78 B.C., which means the book of Esther had to have been written long before this and been widely accepted to have been translated into Greek. So most likely it's written around the 400s and 300s, which is a, probably makes it one of the last books. Written in the entire First Testament. Not chronologically one of the last, but one of the last written. There's a lot of Christians who never wanted this book in the Bible. And the reason is God is never mentioned ever in this book. It is the only book in the entire Bible where God is never mentioned, never alluded to. And even when you read this, it doesn't even feel Jewish. It, it, I mean, it's, it's clear that it's like, oh, this is a story about Jews. But there's nothing that really feels Jewish about it. There, they could just be ethnic Jews, and that is it. There's no cultural Judaism really in this book in any kind of way. And so this has led to lots of disputes. Now, I believe, and of course most people believe, that it should be included in the Bible for multiple reasons. The other thing is, Esther is not a godly woman. And I know there's a lot of people who really hate me saying that because there's very few women who are the main characters and stories in the Bible. And that's not because God is like women, that he views women as lesser than men. Because the Bible makes it very clear that God puts women in high standard. I mean, Eve was made an equal to Adam to rule next to him with equal authority over the garden. That was lost in the fall. He, the, all throughout the Bible, you see women as heroes. The, the, the book of Exodus opens up with the daughter of or Miriam, the sister of Moses, and the maidservants, and the princess being the heroes of the story. And when you read the law, the law gives women incredible value. And over and over and over again in the book of Judges and Samuel and Kings, there's women who are always one-upping men and their morality and wisdom and defeating the enemy in a lot of ways. In fact, if it wasn't for the Bible, there would be no feminist movement to begin with. Because it was the women who read the Bible and saw, Hey, that, that doesn't exist in our culture. We need to make the culture more biblical. And they started the feminist movement. A lot of people don't like being told that. But the reality is, that's true. Now, I need to make this clear too. Even though Esther is not a godly woman, we'll go through those points. That does not change the fact that she was not a brave woman. She was a brave woman. And she did put a lot on the line and risked her life in order to save the people, her own Jewish people. And she is a very intelligent, wise woman. But she doesn't seem to really have a relationship with God. And she doesn't really seem to be obedient to Him in the sense of the law goes. And that's not uncommon for this time period either. First... Neither Mordecai or Esther ever returned to the promised land. It has been years since the edict. We're in the 483. 483 is about the time that the book of Esther happens. Um, Cyrus II gave the edict to return back to the land in 539. So there have been years, and yet she nor Mordecai have made any effort to return back to the promised land. Yet, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, make it very clear when the exile is over with, God commanded all Jews to return back to the promised land. And we've seen this as we've gone through the First Testament. There are no blessings outside the promised land. To be outside the land is to be outside the covenant. And if that weren't true, then the exile would not be a punishment. The fact that the exile kicks them out of the land shows that being outside the land is not good. And the exile being over with takes them back to the land, and shows you the exile is where God, or the land is where God wants them to be. And so the fact that they make no effort to obey Jeremiah's command to return back to the land shows at least a disobedience to God's command there. Second, unlike all other post exilic books like Haggai and Zechariah and Obadiah and Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel, Mordecai and Esther did not show any concern for Jerusalem or the people who live in Judah. This is one of the only books that Judah is never mentioned. Jerusalem is never mentioned. The people of Jerusalem are never mentioned. The, the temple is never mentioned ever. And they don't seem to be concerned about the Jews at all. In fact, they don't seem to be concerned about any Jews living in Jerusalem or in the Diaspora. The Diaspora is the word that is used for Jews scattered throughout the land all the land that is not judah they don't seem to be even concerned with those jews until they're they're about ready to die and so they don't seem to be concerned with that where well, you see something completely different where all the other books they're constantly focused on the festivals of Yahweh. They're focused on the temple. They're praying towards the even Daniel, who does not take place in the Promised Land, still prays facing Jerusalem and the temple. And he's, all the visions that he's getting concerns Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Yet there's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple or the land in any kind of way in this book. Third, Mordecai told Esther to hide her Jewish identity. This is the only time that you ever see a Jew hiding their identity and keeping it secret from anybody. And she complied. Don't see this anywhere else. In fact, they're called to make their identity known. God calls them to be a light on a hill. And to attract the nations, and that the nations are supposed to look at them and want to be a part of God. And you clearly see this in Genesis twelve one through three, and Exodus nineteen three through six. Even through 9, Exodus nineteen, God says, "I will make you a unique nation. You are to stand out so that you can be a kingdom of priests, being interacting with the nations and drawing them towards Me and these people." Fourth, unlike Daniel, Esther was not concerned about the Mosaic Law in any kind of a way. She's not concerned about being defiled by the king's palace. Daniel's in the palace, and he doesn't want to be defiled by the paganism of Babylon in any kind of a way. And he makes a commitment not to be defiled. Yet Esther doesn't do this. In fact, not only does she not stop herself being defiled, but she actually dedicates herself to sexually pleasing the king more than any of the other woman's. That she wants to be better in bed with this man than any other woman so that she will win his favor with a man that she's not even married to and having sex with that man. And that right there is a violation of the law in so many kinds of ways of having sexual relations with someone who's not your husband, doing it before you're even married, making that the goal. And so the narrator kind of covers, well, not covers over that, um, flies over that very quickly because he doesn't want to put in a horrible negative light, but the fact that he doesn't avoid it suggests this is not a good thing about her. Fifth, not once does either one of them, Mordecai or Esther, ever pray to God or ever use his name. They're the, every single time somebody does not pray to God, things just do not work out for them. Okay, When Joshua didn't pray to God about the Gibeonites betraying them, it didn't work out. He didn't know that they were deceiving him and they were acting like something else. It didn't work out for him. When David doesn't pray to God, he goes off to Philistine territory and seeks them for refuge and aid. We see this over and over and over again. Not once did they ever mention God. Not once did they ever pray to God. Even when Mordecai says, perhaps it is just a time like this that you've become queen in order to save the people, it's like, Mordecai, that'd be a perfect time to be starting to talk about Yahweh and God. Not just happenstance or coincidence or some universe orchestrating you that way, but actually Yahweh. Now, I do think it's point obvious that they do believe in Yahweh. And they probably do see their Yahweh as the God of their people. But remember, not everybody who views Yahweh as the God of their people or believes in them is actually in a relationship with Yahweh and actually following Yahweh and being obedient to Yahweh. Remember, there is not anybody in the ancient world who denies the existence of Yahweh and that he has some power. But that doesn't mean that they are all obedient and in a relationship with him and know him and trust him. Six, at the end of the story, Esther shows great brutality. She goes from just protecting her people from being killed to actually seeking vengeance against the people and giving command that people can be massacred. There was only one day that people were going to attack the Jews and put them in danger. They were not allowed to attack the Jews on any other day beyond that day, or the king would have punished them for murder. Yet she says, give us one more day to just kill everybody who we think might not like us. And then they just massacred tons of people. That is not godly in any kind of a way. She gives an edict to massacre and kill tons of people. We don't ever see this in the Bible of being praised. Even David, who was the man after God's own heart, was setting out to massacre a whole bunch of people just because they didn't take care of him. And Abigail stopped him, and he was like, you know what, you're right, I was wrong. I was going to kill everybody, and thank God that he sent you to stop me. Yet we don't see that with Esther here. So Mordecai and Esther, neither one of them are portrayed in a godly way. And this is important to understand. Remember, nowhere in the Bible, well, not nowhere, most of the time the narrator does not give us a commentary or an evaluation of people's characters. Even when they're incredibly godly like Daniel, the Bible doesn't. The narrator doesn't say, this is why Daniel's godly. Look at this amazing thing that he did. This is an obedience to the law. When people are incredibly ungodly, like when David's cutting the head off of Goliath and carrying it around as a trophy for 40 years. The narrator doesn't say, See, that is sick and twisted. So most of the time the narrators don't commentate. Most of the time the narrator assumes you already know the law really well and you already know the character of God really well and he expects you to make evaluations of these people. So in the the same vein, the same tradition of not making moral commentaries on people, the narrator continues to not make moral commentaries on Esther and Mordecai. It just present, simply presents their behavior, and you make your own evaluation. But a disobedience to return to the land, an intention to wipe out and massacre a people that you just are afraid that they might hurt you, and her sexual prowesses and her lack of use of God, all that stuff suggests this is not godly character. That does not mean that they do not believe in Yahweh. It doesn't mean that they are not in some kind of belief that He's taking care of them. But there is definitely no relationship there or a desire for obedience. Because of these things, many people struggle to put this book in the Bible. They struggle to see how this points to Yahweh. However, it is so clear that Yahweh is at work, it is so clear. There are too many coincidences that the narrator is highlighting. There are too many reversals of circumstances that the narrator emphasizes. And there's one little thing that suggests that there's a Jewish flavor here, and that's the fasting. And though fasting does exist in other cultures, not to the extent that it did in Judaism. And the fact that fasting is mentioned several times hints at that fact. This shouldn't be surprising. Because as we've gone through this book, yes, there were godly people that we've learned about. Abraham, and Isaac, and well, if you really want to make an argument for Jacob. And and then Ruth, and Tamar, and, and Rahab. And there's all these people that had godly characteristics or attributes about them. However... We know that every single one of them have failed miserably to measure up to God's standard. And one of the most major arguments that the Bible is making is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's not really one person, except for maybe Daniel, who seems to be exonerated from having any negative comments levied against them, Or the narrator going out of its way to show their moral or character failure. The Bible constantly goes after those things. So in this sense, we're not really picking on Esther or Mordecai in any kind of a sense. We're merely just saying what is true of them has been true of many characters throughout the Bible. Except there doesn't seem to be any redeemable godliness to them. Even though they have a very strong character of morality... And a very strong courageousness that they want to stand up and save their people. And so that's the difficult thing. When we read the Bible, sometimes we're like, oh, but they're courageous and they sacrifice their life for their people. And look at their moral character, at least of Mordecai. We're like, what do you mean that they're not godly? But remember, we see that in people around us all the time. There are lots of ungodly people, as in they're not obedient to Yahweh, and they're not trying to obey Him, and they're not trying to please Him, and they're not in relation with Him, have demonstrated great courage and great bravery and even altruistic self-sacrificing for the greater good. And so this doesn't mean that they're horrible, evil, wicked people, but it does mean that they're not being set up as godly examples for us to follow. In fact, the main, the main point of every book is that God is the hero. God is the hero. And so just like most stories, the main point here is that even when these people are not returning to the land, even when these people have not committed themselves to Yahweh, God still honors his promises to take care of his people even outside the land. And that God is working behind the scenes and he can use anybody to accomplish his plans. The setting... Remember, in 539 B.C., Cyrus II gave an edict that all Jews are allowed to return back to the land. So it is now around uh, Xerxes and comes into power. And Xerxes is the king right in between the return of Zerubbabel and then the returns of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we're right in that time period where Zerubbabel has led the people back to the land of Judah. They have finished building the temple. And now we're in this 80-year time period where time is going by and neither Ezra nor Nehemiah are talking about what's going on in Judah. And then right before Xerxes I comes into power and allows Nehemiah to return and Ezra, or Ezra to return and Nehemiah return, we have Xerxes I. And he is the king that is going to marry Esther. And so it is in that time period where the first return has happened, the second and third return are yet to happen. As I already mentioned, this setting is the diaspora. The diaspora is the scattering of Jews around the the Persian Empire. They're the Jews who live outside the land and have not returned. And most of them, over 80% of them, will never return back to the promised land. So we have the people of Judah. Now this is the first time we've ever had a diaspora, because everybody's usually been in the land until the exile. So we're dealing with a new time period. Now because of this large group of people who do not return, they're going to end up developing their own culture. And this is where the synagogues are going to start being developed during this time period. Because if they're no longer in Judah close to the temple, and they refuse to move back to the promised land to be in Judah with the temple, then they're going to try to recreate the idea of the temple with synagogues. So if they had all returned back to the promised land, we would have never had synagogues in place in any kind of a way. Now that hasn't happened yet. That is yet to happen. But that kind of just paints the picture that we're dealing with a, a new culture that's going to begin to develop in Judaism as a result of not returning back to the land. And that's what Esther and Mordecai are coming from. So the purpose of the book of Esther is to show that despite the dangers, dangerous and uncertain world of the diaspora, Yahweh used good qualities of key Jewish people in order to deliver his people from the threat of annihilation. The book of Esther is going to portray living in the land of Persia, outside the promised land, as a dangerous and uncertain place. You see, in the promised land, Yahweh has promised to bless you and take care of you and to make your land flowing with milk and honey if you're obedient to him. In that sense, that is not a dangerous and uncertain place, especially if you're obedient and faithful to Yahweh. But when you're outside the promised land, God makes no promises to take care of you and bless you and protect you. And so life is completely dangerous and completely uncertain, and your future is unknown, and what your leaders will do to you is completely unknown. Yet, what is amazing is that God is still going to take care of his people, even though he doesn't have to. The covenant does not require him to protect his people outside the promised land. The covenant does not require him to protect his people when they're not being obedient to the law. And yet, because he is a faithful and compassionate and merciful God, and true to his promises of the Abrahamic covenant, because the exile is technically over even though they've chosen to physically remain in exile, God will still honor his promises and take care of them. And so that's the primary purpose of this book, is to show that even though they're not godly, even though they're not in the promised land where God has to honor his covenant, for lack of a better phrase, because he made those promises, he will still find those good qualities in Mordecai and Esther, and he will use them to protect and take care of his people despite the fact that they're not where they're supposed to be. And that's the main purpose. Mordecai and Esther, even though they're the main characters in the story, they are not very well developed. We do not get a lot about them. I mean, Daniel is far more developed as a character than Esther and Mordecai is. Ezra and Nehemiah are far more developed. They're very undeveloped characters in a literary kind of a sense. Yet Haman, the enemy, is incredibly developed. He's a multi-dimensional character. We see way more emotions from him and more development than anybody else. And here's what's really interesting. The Bible really never, ever gives us the motives of the characters. Like in modern-day literature in America and in Europe, we're often brought into the thoughts of people in the stories we read. If you read sci-fi or fantasy or mysteries or or biographies or, or dramas, you're constantly brought into their thoughts and books when you're reading fictional books. And you're told, tell, being told what they're thinking and what does motivate them. And even in movies, we may not necessarily hear their thoughts, but you're clearly let know what that is motivating them through indirect means. The Bible never brings us into their motivations. We're not told what motivates David to do this and that and what motivates Daniel to do this and this. We can make guesses based on the context, but it's not specifically highlighted. Haman is one of the only people in the entire Bible where we're actually given insights to what he's thinking, and we're told exactly what's going on in his head, and we're told exactly what's motivating him. And what's interesting, it is the most deplorable enemy of the Jews that in the entire Bible that we are given the most insights to his motives and character of anybody else. And so what the God seems to be doing in this book, I think one of the main things that he's trying to do is highlight the motivations of corrupt dictators or rulers or despots that seek to destroy you in that kind of a way, to show you what motivates them to this end. There is a focus on the palace. Most of the scenes take place in the palace, and it seems to be more about Persia. This is seen first with how much attention is given to the royal palace. Almost every scene, except for two brief scenes that take place in Haman's home, not Esther and Mordecai's homes, all take place in the palace. That is the main setting in the main scene. Second, this focus is shown in the fact that Haman is at the center of the story, and he is the only person that any motives are given to. And we already talked about that. The uncertainty of life for the Jews and the diaspora does not change significantly throughout the story. The climax comes when a whole series of unexplainable reversals begin to happen, pointing to Yahweh working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Thus, this story shows that Yahweh is able and willing to deliver his people. The main focus is on how turbulent this world is. I think one of the things that God is showing is not only is he willing to take care of his people, even when they're not obeying him, and even when they're not supposed to be, when they're not where they're supposed to be. I think one of the other things he's trying to highlight is, when you choose to live outside the promised land, life is chaos. Remember Daniel 7, and the beasts were coming up out of the sea. And they were coming out of the sea, and sea is symbolic of what? Chaos. This is the world outside the promised land. If you've chosen to put yourself right in the heart of Babylon, right in the heart of Persia, right in the heart of the Greeks, your life will be chaos. And I think that's the point that God is making. One, I will still take care of you and use people even when you're not doing what you're supposed to and you're not where you're supposed to because that's the kind of God I am. But two, Do not be surprised if you live in a world of chaos and the world is dangerous and uncertain for you when you're outside the promised land, when you're outside the covenant, when you're outside the blessings of God. That's interesting for us where we are today because America is one of the beasts that come up out of the sea. The Bible makes it very clear that any nation is a beast that comes from the sea. Any nation that is not the chosen people of God is the beast that comes out of the sea. So we live in a chaotic, dangerous, uncertain place. And if anything has truly exposed the reality of that, it has been this year. This year, watching the news, has shown that we truly do live in a dangerous and uncertain place. However, what is interesting is, unlike for the Jews, we are the promised land. Christ has fulfilled it by indwelling us. So where before God left the promised land, remember? And when he left the promised land, the promised land ceased to be the promised land. And so when he brought them back after the end of exile, it became the promised land again. And God living in the promised land makes it the promised land. He promises that the temple in the new Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And that place will become a garden of Eden. But Christ in the Gospels, and we talked about this at the very end of the pre-exilic prophets, Christ in the Gospels made it very clear that he is the new temple. And he made it very clear that by putting the Holy Spirit in us, we are the new temple. Therefore, we are the new Jerusalem. So in a way, we are the promised land because Christ and the Holy Spirit and God dwell in us. So this presents an interesting dichotomy where we are the promised land living outside the promised land. And so in that sense, you can expect to live in a dangerous and uncertain place full of chaos because we're not in the promised land. Yet, you can expect that God will honor his promises to take care of you and bless you and prosper you. And I don't mean like health, wealth, and prosperity, but joy, peace, and hope because you are with him. And so for us now... Dwelling with God, pursuing God, praying and reading our Bible, resting in Him, is how we maintain the promised land blessings and promises. And so this presents an interesting dichotomy. And I think that's one of the other reasons this book is in the Bible, is to begin to prepare us for the fact that most of us will not be in the promised land, not in a physical sense. Yet, Christ is dwelling in us as if we are the promised land. And so we were meant to take Ezra and Nehemiah and the amazing things that God did for them when the enemy was attacking them and mix it with Esther, the dangerous and uncertain territory, and merge them together in this weird paradox that we have in our life now. And I think that's what most of us struggle with right now. Because we're like, oh my gosh, God, like this is really jacked up the time periods that we're living in. And I feel more unstable and more uncertain in the entire time that I've been alive now than I ever have before. Yet at the same time, God is with us. He's made promises to be with us. He's made promises that if we commit ourselves to him and we, we, we remain true to him and trust in him, he will be true to honor the promises that he made to us. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that's the tension we live with. Hey, Israel was like promised almost a dome of protection that they lived in the land and they were obedient. If you lived outside the land, you weren't promised that. But that's that struggle we have right now. It's like, yeah, but didn't God promise this to, 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 as believers? And yet he didn't promise this and this to make your life happy, go lucky, comfortable, and joyous. And that's the, that's the dichotomy that we're struggling with. And I think Esther begins to open that theological conversation there. The second purpose of the book of Esther is to obligate the Jewish community to institute an annual celebration of Purim. They're meant to celebrate the festival of God that where God protect them from being annihilated. And I think this is important. Even as Christians, we are grafted into Judaism. So as Christians, we are called to celebrate Purim. And remember... And not that we, like, have to remember the time that we as not Jews were saved by, from annihilation, but we are to celebrate and remember that God protect his people from annihilation. And so he will protect us as well. Yes, we may die in persecution, but we will never be annihilated as a people group, as the church, as the believers. And so this is the second purpose. There are two major themes in this book. The first one is the providence of Yahweh. We've already been kind of talking about that. But it is clear that God is at work in this book, even though he's not specifically mentioned. And I think that's intentional too. One, they don't really mention God, because I think partly because they're not really in this deep, intimate relationship with God like Daniel is. I mean, you cannot make a good argument for Mordecai and Esther being godly people when you take the way that they interact with God or don't. (laughs) And you put it in parallel with the way that Nehemiah and Daniel and Ezra interacted with God. And even though we may not agree with what Ezra did all the time, it is very clear that the prayer life of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel was very strong. The constantly invoking their confidence in Yahweh was very strong and repetitive over and over and over again. Yet not once do you see that in the life of Mordecai and Esther, that prayer or invoking their trust in Yahweh in any kind of a sense. So not only is I think he emphasizing that they don't have that by leaving God out of it, but I think he's also emphasizing when it feels like God is not there. When the people who should be talking about God are not talking about God and everybody else is not talking about God or following God and God feels very absent because this isn't the promised land And you've got this willy-nilly despot king who's just throwing edicts around to massacre people and not giving a second thought as he's drinking wine in one hand and throwing the pen signet ring in the other hand. You're like, what hope do we have? And God is saying, I'm still here. Even though I'm not being written all over your country and your nation everywhere and not every street is praising God, I am here and I'm taking care of you. And so one of those other examples of God being present. And this is exactly what they did with the um, the disciples. One of the cool things that Jesus is doing in his ministry is that he's blatantly right there in their face doing miracles. And he's saying, look at me. I can do miracles. I'm powerful. If you trust me, I will take care of your life. I will heal you. I will provide for you. All that kind of stuff. Then he weans them off of him. He falls asleep in the boat when the storm is coming to kill them. And they're freaking out like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. He's asleep. If he's asleep, he must not know what's going on. We're not safe, and then he wakes up and he's like, "Silly little people, don't don't you know that I can handle this no matter what? Even I'm still aware, even though I'm sleeping." So then the next, so that's like um, that's your like 101 class is right in your face doing miracles. And then they get to 201 and they fail the exam, and he's asleep. So now the third time he's completely out of the boat. He's not even anywhere to be seen. And they're freaking out they're going to die. Yet we know as the reader, he's on the shore watching them the entire time. And I think what he's trying to show them is, because then the four, then they still fail the, the test. They're like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And then they think he's an actual ghost coming to kill them, which is really flunking the exam. So, But then what does he do at the very end of the Gospels? He ascends into heaven and completely leaves the earth. And I think what Jesus is doing is saying... You see me physically here doing miracles. Then I'm asleep and I can still handle the storm. Then I'm not even in the boat and I can still handle the storm. So can you connect the dots and assume that when I'm not on the planet, I can still handle the storm in your life? And I think that's what he's doing here is showing you I can handle the storm even when people aren't talking about me, even when it feels like they're not following me, and even when the people who should be faithful and godly, are not being faithful and godly, I'm still here taking care of you. And between Daniel's visions of God being sovereign with all these beasts coming out of the sea, and now this, we are without excuse to not trust him. To not trust him. In the midst of a storm when God isn't blatantly in our face. I think this is the reason why we're given this book not to highlight the amazingness of esther and mordecai but to highlight the amazingness of a god who's still here even when it seems like he's not there are things that cue us in that god is at work and the first one is the context of the book of esther favors reading all these elements as statements about divine providence the narrator hints in two places that this is the case first All throughout the First Testament, fasting is directly connected to the idea of stripping oneself of basic needs in order to surrender to Yahweh in prayer. Twice the Jewish community fasts in order to bring about change. Even though Esther and Mordecai don't seem to really be focusing and zeroing on who God is and trusting in Him and seeking Him out in prayer, the entire Jewish community that surrounds them twice is said to be fasting. And fasting is the sole purpose of stripping yourself of everything that you would trust on, trust in for your assurance. And leaning into God and prayer for assurance. And the fact that that is a very Jewish element that is directly connected to spirituality all throughout the First Testament. And the narrator seems to go out of its way to highlight fasting in this book more than any other book. As a subtle way of saying... Yet there are people who are not the main characters in this book and are not specifically mentioned by name and are not the focus that are still actively pursuing God and are in prayer. And therefore God is being invoked in some way or fashion. The second thing that hints at the fact that God is a part of this book is this sudden unexpected reversals in the story. Several times we're going to see where everything is in against the favor of the Jews. And then we hit this pivot where all of a sudden everything begins to reverse and it all of a sudden becomes in their favor. I'm not going to highlight these right now because we'll highlight them as we go through the book. The third thing that seems to emphasize that Yahweh is a part of this book is that there is this constant background theme of Joseph and even the Exodus narratives. Just like with Joseph, he was in the palace, at the right hand of the pharaoh, in a corrupt time period that was going to threaten his brothers' lives. Joseph is there, guiding the king, and we kind of have that idea here. We also see exodus narratives of the people being delivered and rescued, and God doing amazing things. And these themes seem to highlight the fact that God is present when you see. Very concrete new testament second sorry first Testament themes that are getting repeated or hinted at that suggest to you that God is at work and he 's doing what He has always been doing and that 's delivering his people. The second theme is human initiative we don 't see this a lot in the First Testament, usually God is the focus, but there is a sense where God has emphasized. That there is a combination between God being active and us being active. Not only does God take the initiative to do things, and nothing can be done without him, yet at the same time, he doesn't want us just sitting around on the couch eating bonbons and waiting for God to do everything for us. And so there's a sense that he wants us to take initiative. But our initiative needs to be taken in prayer and dependence upon him. We see this theme where, yes, they're not very godly, and yes, God is going to save the Jews. Even Mordecai makes this point that if you don't step up and save the Jews, then somebody else will just come in and do it. Like God has shown himself over and over and over again to not let the Jews ever be annihilated. And if it's not you, it'll be somebody else. But you're the one who's going to miss out on the blessings of being used by God. And that's the thing. You can't think ever that this won't happen if you don't step up and be faithful. What really is true is not that God can't do this without you. What's really true is that you miss out on the blessings and the joy and and the experience of being a part of what God is doing. The consequences have more to do with you than it does with the cosmic ordering of the universe. This human initiative is strongly emphasized that though Esther and Mordecai are not portrayed as very godly people, their initiative to make sacrifices to save people and to do what is right, morally speaking, is incredibly highlighted in this book. And that is lifted up as a high moral attribute or character trait and emphasizes what we should be like as well. So these are the two main themes. The structure of the book is actually a satire. And if you don't really know what a satire is, because it's not like a genre that we use a lot in our day and culture, satire is, think mostly Monty Python and the Flying Circus or the Holy Grail or the, 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 the rip-off of Monty Python is Saturday Night Live. So that idea of mocking and if you've ever read Princess Bride or seen the movie, that actually was originally a political satire against the king. But then S. Morgenstein stripped all the political stuff out so we'd just have an entertaining love story and sword fighting. But originally it was to portray them in a mocking kind of way. Three Musketeers was a satire and uh, against the monarchy. So they would tell a story, and in the story they would mock the government and show how stupid and petty and ridiculous that they were. And that's what this book is. This book is a huge satire that has incredible mocking of the king and the palace and the life and showing you why would you ever trust any governmental leader for your future and your peace and prosperity when you peel back the curtain and move into the office of these people, so to speak, and this is what they act like that's the main purpose here is to show that this book is divided into two major sections it's a chiastic structure where we have a series of events leading up to a climax and then all those events are mirrored mirrored, and repeated in reverse order falling out of that climax so we have what we have is all these events that show horrible things happening to the jews and then it hits his climax on the night that the king could not sleep. And then everything gets reversed and starts working in the favor of the Jews in reverse order. And so that's the chaotic structure you have. And this is the main pivot. The main climax or the pivot of the book is on the night that the king could not sleep. And you're not supposed to see that as like, oh, poor king. He's not going to be able to function very well the next day. You're supposed to see this as divinely orchestrated by Yahweh, because everything changes in that moment. So that's where we're going to see the pivot. This is the purpose, themes, and setting of the book of Esther.